Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. Today, we're at DragonCon. First day, it just started, and the crowds are amazingly enthusiastic. So if you hear any large crowd sounds, it's because there's a very large crowd making lots of sounds. So today's guest is Illustrators of the Future judge, who I first met him, and then Writer of the Future winner, and now published novelist Lazarus Chernick. Welcome, Lazarus. Hello. So, Good morning. Um, yeah, so it's, um, you've been on this podcast two or three times before, but this is the first time now actually as a published novelist. You were, when you won the, the Rise of the Future, you were here, but now as a published novelist. Yes, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, so um, as this is the Rise of the Future uh, podcast and it's built around the Rise of the Future contest, the contest that was created by Elwin Hubbard back in 1983, to do exactly what we're going to be talking about with you to provide that, that helping hand for a person who really has that dream to aspire to it and achieve as a writer in this case or as an illustrator for the other contest. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about how your dream began as a writer. Uh, well, my uh, author name is Lazarus Black, but my uh, given name is Lazarus Chernick. It's not a secret, uh, but Chernick translates to the color black, so it's not really that. Well, I didn't know that. that. That's clever. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in, uh, uh, in the Ukraine, the, uh, uh, what we call the Black Sea, they actually call the Chernick Sea. Wow. It's actually what it's called. So my career as, a, as an author started as a child. That uh, My mother was a librarian, not just any librarian. She was the uber librarian. Uh, tell, I love telling the story. She wasn't just a librarian. She didn't just, uh, she wasn't just a library director. She wasn't just teaching library science. She wrote the textbooks for college. Wow. Um, so growing up, you know, I would, as an only child, she would either, she would bring me to the library all the time. And I would just sit there while she was working and wander the library, looking at all the books, reading what I could. And I started telling stories, you know, and Unfortunately, with uh, two working parents and uh, not a lot of family around, I didn't have anyone who would read my stories. It was always, that's great, put it right here, I'll get to it, and it would never be out to. But I learned uh, as I explored art, I could just hold something up and within two seconds I get a response. Like, oh, that's Ooh, great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that sort of led me down a different path and I ended up going to art school, but I was always writing, always creating always telling stories, playing role-playing games forever, and then eventually uh, had a decent career in advertising, um, still role-playing, still telling stories with all my friends. Uh, always in the back of my head, a little bit of a dream that I would like to do this forever. I would like to actually get the world to hear my stories. And finally, about five, six years ago now, I'm getting lost in my timeline that we got involved with the uh, uh, Illustrators of the Future mm -hmm. competition. Right. And I had never heard of anything like that. Certainly nothing that was legitimate. Right. Uh, lots of uh, you know, pay-to-play type of contests. A lot of uh, you know, people do all this work and you know, we might consider you for something as long as it's exactly what we're asking for. And that wasn't right. Uh, also, I wasn't certain about you know, who was judging the... But when I met the judges, Rise of the Future, and like met Larry Niven and met Robert Sawyer and Kevin J. Anderson 
and Brandon Sanderson and went, oh, these, these, this isn't just any contest. These are people who are, you know, they know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. This is, and I thought, well, this is pretty cool. But I didn't voice too much about it. Uh, but my wife turned to me and said, you know, it's time. You've been talking about it. Think about it. It's time for you to just start writing. And I, the contest is anonymous, but I still approached, uh, I approached David Wolverton at the time. And I said, uh, you know, might be interested in doing some writing. And he just turned to me and said, well, yeah, go ahead. And as silly as that sounds, as just off the cuff, considering how much negativity is out there in the world for anyone who wants to try something new or try something creative, you know, especially I want to be a writer. Everyone thinks they can write. I want to be an artist. You can't make money in art. Well, I made a decent career and my wife has a you know, decent career in art. We know we can do that. But uh, that encouragement from David was like, okay, I can do this. And he, but he asked me, you know, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, maybe a short story a month. He's like, well, then you have an anthology in a year. That's a good plan. I'm like, okay, that's a great idea. And then my wife actually approached Joni, the, uh, um, the manager of the contest. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, it is an anonymous contest. Could Lazarus submit? And Joni said, well, the, uh, she thought about it, hemmed and hawed a little bit, and then remembered that L. Ron Hubbard is a photographer and an artist, as well as a writer and a pilot and all these other billions of things that he did in his life, you know, and things that you know, I've done many, many different things in my life. And she, you know, I think she talked about it internally. I didn't hear that much about it, but she said, you know what? We'll worry about it if he wins. Just go ahead and submit. At the very least, it was encouragement, you know? Right. Um, I mean, even, I mean, uh, there are plenty of people who have never won that went on to great careers. Brandon Sanderson, for example. Right. And so it was, you know, good exercise. And about two years after, you know, consistently doing it and improving and working with a few of the online workshops, uh, both the, both the Writers of the Future workshops and ones run by, uh, Dave Wolverton, David Farland, um, talking to, uh, getting a book by um, Aldous Budras, Writing to the Point, I think it was called. Yeah. And reading those. And a few other authors that I know that I started practicing and working, and eventually I won out uh, first place uh, for my quarter. And I remember when that, when Joni came up, like, <laughs> now what do we do? <laughs> he won. <laughs> And that, I said, that was, but it was Lazarus Black. It wasn't Lazarus Chernick. I said, <laughs> okay, well, let's just keep Lazarus Black as the name. And because, well, well, the way it, and the way it works was really funny because you know that the winners of the of the quarter are then announced. But if you're a first place winner, like I was, one of the four, uh, those four then go for an additional voting. But the thing is, they couldn't, they were afraid to make an announcement of my name because the other judges, I knew at least a few of them. Right. You know, I'm not going to say I know all of them, and I certainly, uh, not all of them know who I am. Some of them by, know by my face because I, I wave to them on stage, but that's about it. Right. So uh, Joni had me pick a, a fake name to advertise with and post with. And that was, uh, that was funny. That was that was that was difficult to, to manage for a while. Not have to 
you know, generically post, congratulations, all the winners. <laughs> um, and then, uh, then I was allowed to promote it. But the most important thing for my career is that I'm a perfectionist. As yeah. an artist, I rose to a level where I teach other people how to do things correctly. I teach the software, I teach design, I teach theory, uh, color theory, I teach uh, drawing and a whole bunch of other things. And so I know how important craft is, at least to me. I mean, some people are less interested in craft than I am, but I wanted my stories to actually be good. I mean, the stories themselves are gonna have subjectivity. Right. But the actual craft of it, I wanted to at least elevate it to a level in which people will just say, I do or do not like the story, not saying this is good or bad writing. And so I struggled with that. But when I won, David uh, sent me my congratulations letter that also included you know, notes and explanations that he was going to start you know, sending me edits to it. But his, the, the email he sent to me, and, and uh, I spoke with Mary since his passing, and she's uh, uh, allowing me to share this private communication. He specifically said, congratulations, Lazarus. Uh, this was perfectly written. And coming from David, who is one of the preeminent writing teachers in the world, especially for genre fiction, really meant something to me. He, uh, David does hem and haw a little bit. He doesn't just lay on uh, a praise thickly to everybody. Right. And, but I took that honestly and I said, okay, now I can knuckle down and say, I've reached a point in which someone of note thinks that I'm there. I can now put it to create what I really want. Leading up to that, I had been working on a novel on and off. And I wrote the first novel. As I wrote the novel all the way through. It, was, it became this one. And I wasn't happy with it. I sent it off to some readers. I even paid a couple professional authors to read it for me. And they had decent reviews. But more importantly, I was asking about the craft. And all the beta readers said, oh, my craft was fine. And I knew that was not correct. Right. Um, so I then rewrote the novel from scratch. Learning. Now this is urban. We're talking about this. This, this became this one. So was it was it always called the True Dragon of Atlanta? Was that your uh, original concept? So it uh, it was. was it, in its urban. It was fantasy. intended to be a standalone, uh, and written and designed to be a standalone called the True Be the the Bell of the True Dragon. And you'll see at the bottom of the, it says here Part One: The Bell of the True Dragon. Right. It is a standalone novel, even though it says part one. Right. Because the character still lives at the end of it. Sorry, spoiler. And, you know, she can have more adventures. Right. But it's not serialized, specifically. It's not a Monster of the Week story. It's. Uh, I mean, you put at the very end, and I'm not going to say what it is, but you put something at the very end, which sets up for a book two. Yes, but, but it's not a cliffhanger. No, it's just it's not up. a cliffhanger, it's and it's uh, um, also obviously there's going to be a teaser for for more things. Not everything gets resolved at the end. There is more to the universe, but in a perfect world, you know, it might inspire fan fiction. Honestly, you know, people people love doing those things. So if there's something that if I if I write every single book as a standalone, but with a few little teasers, 
you know, if I end up only writing one, two, three, four books, I'm not going to fall into R.R. Martin's conundrum or uh, any of the other authors where people are complaining that's not finished. I'm saying, you know, go ahead. You could write some fan fiction for it. But briefly to finish, after David sent me that email, I sat down and I rewrote the novel again for the fourth time. And that's and that I polished and published, and that's what this is. I get it. So this is the Two Dragon of Atlanta. Yes. It is urban fantasy. And Magical realism, if people are really sticklers to specific genres, and that, for those who don't know, uh, urban fantasy includes something that happens in the city, but uh, in modern times, but there's magic around. Magical realism is often described as the main character, the magic is not obvious at the beginning, and you follow the main character's journey to discovering that it exists. So it's sort of like the real world, but then there's this underlying theme to it. I get it, yeah. And what's uh, interesting, too, is we're here at DragonCon <laughs> in Atlanta, where this story is situated. And um, I, I, I want to say that's coincidence, and it really is, but... Uh, part That's of the pretty cool changed, coincidence. Part of the reason why I changed the title was because Bell of the True Dragon was as, as accurate as it was, didn't evoke a lot. The True Dragon of Atlanta has the theme of it, the true, as urban fantasy with the dragon, and it has a setting of Atlanta. It says everything, and I hate to sound like I constructed it, but the True Dragon of Atlanta was always part of the story. I just... You know, led with it this on book one. Sure. In the, the cover description, escort, thief, liar, <laughs> friend, sister, mother, dragon, goddess. And it's just interesting how she really is all those things there and how that transition occurs. And also now, what's your connection to Chinese? Because there's all the, there's all the, the Chinese so, letters as well. So, yes, I'm a white dude, uh, but <laughs> I was raised with an international community from a, a child. I was always surrounded by people from all cultures all around the world. Uh -huh. um, I, I, my parents sent me to a small, small, small private school, but I you know, always had people from every ethnicity and cultural background around me. And I just feel comfortable with that. So I, right. I, and I lived in New York City. I moved to New York City because I loved having that multicultural background. And so having a lot of friends of various different cultural backgrounds, I learned a lot also in storytelling and studying uh, urban, uh, urban myths and, and past myths that you, I don't just read the, the, the encyclopedia. I should go back and we'll find the books written from that culture, maybe translated and, and with the, and the, the, the Icelandic sagas, I actually learned Old Norse to read them in the original. And there's so much rich material there to, to work from, and there are comparisons. Mm -hmm. I wrote this story for my children. It has a message, a meaning, it has something that I feel is important that I wanted my children to know. And I think a lot of people would appreciate. There is a common Western theme I could have applied to it that would have meant something similar, but it would have been too obvious. 
too on the nose. People would have gotten it within the first page and they just kind of would have, eh. Right. It would not have been as interesting. But by using all these uh, Asian American, Chinese American themes and bringing in myths from Asia that most well, Western readers are not going to be familiar with, it's all fresh. It's all new. Right. Um, it also, because it's fantasy, I get to play on the concept of that's what it was written, but this is what it really is. I placed in Atlanta because I needed a location that would encapsulate the danger of what's going on. Now, this is not really Atlanta. It's a novel. It's fiction. So if anyone you know, reads the book and has said, this, you know, this doesn't sound like the Atlanta I know, like this alternate universe, it's a little bit different. But at the same time, you know, every city is going to have their little dark side to it. Right. So this is Atlanta with a dark side. And also by having the main character as pretty much an outsider in almost every single possible way, it allowed the it allows you me to explore all those different aspects of the entire uh, milieu. Right. That was um, that was amazing with with May, who's the principal character there. I mean, she's quite the the personality and personalities, and um, but how. The resolution of May at the end was was quite fulfilling, and uh, it's interesting too how so many broken characters. <laughs> it's like wow, <laughs> you know, who became the good guys at the end? Yeah. You know, um, well, the every character needs to have a growth. Yeah, they need they need to have a reversal. They need to have growth. They need to end up as someone different than they began. And that transformation is really what struck me and what I wanted to tie in. And in order, and so for May to become someone that is valuable to the world, to society at the end, I had to tear her down and make sure that, you know, she was still interesting and relatable, but not necessarily the, you know, she's not an every person. She's not, not, She's not Jim, John Doe or Jane Doe, Jane Average. You know, she has specific quirks about her that are unique and different and I, I think are interesting to, to engage with. But, you know, she curses a lot because of, her, you know, where she is in society. Yeah. And I, I had a version in which I had stripped all that out because there were some readers that didn't like it. But it just felt so sanitized that by the end of it, that by the end, it's like there, she didn't grow as much as I really think she needed to. You know, the idea is by, she's the only, she and her sister are really the only ones that curse in the story. Mm -hmm. Everyone else doesn't, which kind of shows where she is in relation to everybody else. Um, now, it's interesting too, just... Tying, pulling it back now for people that are listening to this that, you know, how you came to, to do this. So now you were, you were at the, well, you've been wanting to be a writer since, this is even from an earlier podcast interview, since you were knee high to a I've always to a told stories. I've always wanted to get my stories. I always wanted other people to react to my stories. Looking back on it, when I went to art school, I probably should have gone into film, but that wasn't 
for some reason there, that wasn't encouraged yeah. in my life. So, uh, you know, but I am where I'm supposed to be now. Yeah. So now I'm on writing. So one thing that I think is really important that people realize is that you're not, you're never too late to realize your dream, to go for your dream and realize your dream. And that's something that you did. you had a whole career, a very successful career. And then you had this earlier dream that kind of like bubbled back up again. Like you said, your wife said, go for it. But let's talk about that house. Well, never too late. To I remember one of the years I was one of my first years judging uh, at the event. Um, there was a winner. A gentleman stood up there and he was 67 years old as a winner of the writers of the future. And, you know, and he gave that speech of like, you're never too old. And that was, that was a good kick in the pants. Like, yeah, you're right. You're not. On the other, on the other hand, I also have to adjust my dream. My dream is to get the story into people's hands who will love it. I want to change my readers' lives. I want to entertain them. I want them to feel fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I have any success, I want that to be my legacy. Right. Um, I'm not sitting down trying to churn out as many books as possible as, uh, um, not that there's anything wrong with that for other writers, just that's not my path. Right. And when I was at the Writers of the Future uh, um, event and during the workshops, I finally, for the first time, got to talk to the authors and the author judges as an author and about writing, because usually it was just, you know, I was the art guy and they were busy on their own things. I couldn't bother them. And everyone had their different path of mm -hmm. success. And I noticed that the different writers that were winners that we were all together, each one of us had a slightly different path to take. And it took me a bit to really realize and to think about, find an author that, and one of the judges that had I don't want to say a path to emulate, but one that was a lot closer to how I expect my career to be. Right. I mean, I, I, Dean Wesley Smith is an awesome person. I am not going to write a book every two weeks. <laughs> I am not going to be the guy to write a hundred novels in a, in a hundred days or whatever it is he does. <laughs> That's just not my path. Right. Um, but uh, uh, Rob Sawyer, Sawyer is amazing, and he was talking about, he gave us a lecture, and he said, you know, he's only written a handful of novels. They've all been well-received, and they all go different directions, too. You know, critically, critically acclaimed. As up, and that, you know what? That's closer to what I'm not. There's no way I can compare myself to him at the beginning. There's no way, I, but I can say that is what I aspire to be. Right. You know, maybe I'm 51. Maybe I've got 20 years of a decent writing career ahead of me. How many novels can I do in that amount of time? I don't know, but it's going to probably be closer to, you know, 10 or 20 than it's going to be, you know, 50, 60, 70, 700 or whatever, <laughs> 1,400 that uh, uh, L. Ron Hubbard has, whatever it is. <laughs> no, he's, but he was quite prolific. He was, yeah. you know. That, that's for sure. So when you did the workshop, what's the biggest standout for you, both in terms of the lectures or the uh, workshops that you attended itself, the various panels, and also any of the essays? 
Well, I, I'm going to say the, the standout experience for me was being able to talk to Rob Sawyer about his path because that is a lot closer. Right. Um, and he was very kind and he loved my story. Apparently he uh, gave me a quote to use uh, 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 for my novel and for my website um, uh, recommendation because he believes in me and he, and he likes what I've written. You're in volume 30, 38, 38, 38, 38, the one, the one with the mammoth on the cover. Okay, good. And, uh, and, and what was, but what was really important is to know that the way I can write is going, can be successful. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have, you know, everyone has different paths. I mean, Mike Stumbos is an amazing writer, but, and, uh, after between, his winning his quarter and the year later to accept his award, he had a book deal and he was already publishing two or three in a series, you know, and he's a serial writer and he's got some, you know, and that's what he wants to do. And he's just, he's banging those out and he's managing an anthology right now. I'm really impressed. Um, like that's not my path, right? But at the same time, it's very easy to look at, Grass is greener, right? It's very easy to look at what somebody else is doing and how they're succeeding and you go, oh, I should do it more like them. No, no, you have to find who you are as a writer or an artist and, you know, put that out. What's funny is you say that, how many people are going to look at you and, and do the same thing about you from their perspective? Well, I, I hope I can be inspirational you will to be. somebody. You know, this is, I mean, this is, I keep on calling it urban fantasy because that's that's a more recognizable, you know, yeah, genre name. Even though you're going to go and you have to pick a genre for marketing, right? You have to pick a genre for marketing. But in my mind, it's just this is a lot more in my mind more literary than it is a genre fiction, because the the so the standard pitch, right? <laughs> Good. Standard I'm pitch. ready. I'm sitting down. Let's. We have the wind up. <laughs> when a magical temple bell threatens to reveal the world's truths, a liar has to ascend into a goddess to save the world. Good. It, so it sounds great and magnetic, and it could be you know, the lead-in to like a Guardians of the Galaxy type movie. It is not a Guardians of the Galaxy novel. It's Definitely. a lot more like Dune. And I don't mean Dune as in the, the you know, how epic in scope it is. I mean just... If, it, if you've ever seen the movie versus read the book, there is a very profound tonal difference right. between them. And right. uh, now I have a lot of humor in this book, but it's all about personal interaction and growth um, and, uh, and character development. Yeah, you definitely get, you, know, you do really well on the characters. It's got, I mean, it's got a great storyline for sure, but the characters are also so unique and how they all work together it's 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 like you put together from a lot of real life experience on different kinds of people the way it is it's put together uh yes I, I so my nature is to study people i love people i love listening to them uh as a storyteller i've been you know for decades this is something I, not writing but as collecting resources meeting people who have an interesting speech pattern, meeting people with interesting background. Uh, my my uh, tradition, as are my career in marketing and advertising, 
studies people deeper than simply how they behave or what they say. Right. You know, why do they do what they do? Who are they? It, and, and that makes a difference. And when I was writing characters, specifically the ones that were uh, less like myself, I mean, all of them have a big, have a huge part of me as an author. You can't stop that. But as the people, characters that were less like myself, I made sure to incorporate very, very real people, real elements, um, some closer to me than others and not. Um, and to make sure they were all individuals, not a single character in the novel, in this novel, is representative of any demographic or group. They are right. all specifically individuals that you will that you can meet on the street and find out. And that's one of the important things why I want I change point of views. Every single person in the character, uh, every single character is an individual with right. their own backgrounds, their own motivations, and I. You know, someone can't pick up the book and so say, well, this character isn't like anyone that I know. Like, that's fine. I know different people than you know. Right. Here's a person who, like, that was uh, one of my favorite characters I've ever in my life is in this novel, and it's Bison. I was going to say, you, Bison, you have, there's so much more. He's much more of a real person. All, I mean, all the people are great, but Bison, all of a sudden, he's like, that explains it then, what you just said there. Bison's a seriously cool dude. Bison's a wonderful character, and I've gotten some incredible feedback uh, uh, on on Bison. Um, they are an amalgam of several different people in my life, including myself. And one of the most important things is that, as I said, I grew up and went to a private school, so I knew different people. Mm -hmm. And... Some of the people ended up in Bison, and I had Bison go to a private school. It's not actually mentioned, but you can tell. Yeah. As you're reading the story, you can tell this is not a character that is, you know, a street kid. They've had a different background. It eventually becomes, they kind of reveal a little bit, you go, oh, that's why who they are who they are. Um, that's why they talk the way they do. You know, that's why they have this particular sensibility. Right. And it's not something that someone can say oh well this is not the way that person would be if they grew up here I'm like yeah actually no that's exactly how they would be if they grew up here because i was there and i i know that person i get it so now when you were starting now as a writer that we went from aspiring to actually accomplished you did the um we have our rising future online writing workshop how much of of a difference did that, did that make for you doing the workshop? So it's a free online workshop at writersofthefuture.com. Right. So the workshops that I've taken, including Writers of the Future, encompassed many facets of writing. And what was the most valuable from the Writers of the Future one and from a few others is that uh, everything I understood and everything I had taught myself, self-taught, learned from the few classes that I had taken years and years ago um, about character and motivation and story structure and emotion and intensity, all of those things I was doing correctly and was valid. Good. I was watching it and they would say, you do this. I'm like, huh, I'm already doing this. You do this. Oh, I'm already doing this. That stamp 
was huge because I could, as I said, I'm a craft person. I could say, okay, that I feel good about. I can now move on to the other things. And the things I was not confident about, the things that I spent four years learning were the actual putting words onto paper. Right. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed Tim Powers and Orson Scott Card's presentations about characters and stories. Uh, Kevin J. Anderson is the one who uh, uh, promote, uh, told me about the Algis Budras book, Writing to the Points. And reading right at the point about the seven-point plot right. reminded me of 20 years ago, 25 years ago, <laughs> when, I had, when I was taking screenwriting courses. And they described it slightly differently. I'm like, oh, so this all does go together. And this is how it works. Um, so I think that anyone who wants to go and watch these things, I can tell you that it absolutely ties into what other people are saying around the world. However, they do give it a stamp of approval from their level of success. Right. Um, it's hard to sometimes take advice from people who do not have that level of success. Um, yeah, it becomes a blind leading the blind when it's... Exactly. Yeah. That blind leading the blind is something that's very, very common in the... The, the arts in general, except, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, you know, just especially in, in writing where you've got teachers will teach, okay, so this is how you do it. They themselves are not published yeah. as an author or they did the pay to play. Uh, writing is something that is focused on more in school, in every class, in every, you know, in history class and, and English and all those. So everyone learns the certain techniques of writing. Not everyone learns all the techniques, uh, the most basic techniques of art. So in order to be, get any good at art, you really need that hard, focused, dedicated uh, uh, lessons. Like at art school. You know, an art school or at least, you know, uh, uh, you need to be taught. You need to actually read the manuals. You know, someone needs to show you exactly what is going on. And you need that for good writing as well. And a lot of, and there are a lot of people who are writers that they learn the basic techniques and they have great ideas and they go out and immediately start and they eventually decide that they want to put things together and but they're at a point in their lives like I was in which there was no one to talk to I couldn't afford to just turn around you know set my family aside and say I'm going to go to co to college now right I need to find resources that would teach me these things and I found uh, some writing groups. I found a few uh, workshops and the workshops really are absolutely critical uh, to my success and probably other people's in the future. You nearly need to know what you're doing. Right. There are reasons for things. They're not just, you know, I, I think it should sound better this way. Good. Yeah. That's one thing that several of our judges and definitely Owen Hubbard said too is a writer needs to write in order to build, you know, their own voice, you know, so that you wrote this one, this is four times. And this is what, 125,000 words? How, how long is this? This is 154,000 words, which words. turns into the way I formatted it, 550 some odd pages. Yeah. Um, with, you know, plus illustrations that I did myself. Uh, plus Gorgeous cover. Uh, I didn't do the cover. The cover is by uh, Chris uh, Chris Casciano. He's amazing. My wife found him. 
Um, yeah, he just he killed it. Um, totally. And totally. that's 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 a big deal. Yeah. You know, the the cover says that I'm paying attention to every detail on this book, and I did. Yeah. So now with as your your journey to becoming a a novelist, you got back into entering the world of writing through the Writers of the Future competition. So how many times did you enter? Any honorable mentions before you got your win? How how that go? Uh, I entered Surprise the Future every single quarter for a little over two years, I think. My first entries were, let's see how I am. Right. So it was, what, what, what am I like now? And I didn't do a lot of research. Um, I read the instructions, but not too carefully. Well, I'm sure the way a lot of people do. And I submitted. And I didn't get anything for the first couple quarters of stories that I thought were really good. And then I started, as I started exploring writing community, uh, learned that there were some overused tropes that I didn't know were overused. It's not that you can't do them. It just means you have to do them very, very well. Mm -hmm. And I had not done them really, really well. Uh, I learned that there are certain topics and content that, you know, was not appropriate for this contest. Okay. My go-to, I mean, honestly, this novel is not something I could submit <laughs> to writers of the future. Sure. Uh, you know, it, especially with all the cursing in it and some of the content, but it's just, I, I write for adults. And so I had to, reformulate what I was doing content wise. And then I started learning about the details and the structure and I started getting some uh, honorable mentions and that felt good that yeah. I was at least on the right path. Right. And then I wrote a story that well, actually I sat back after my, uh, another honorable mention and I thought, what, what story should I write specifically for the contest as opposed to writing a story that I liked? Right. And it was because I'm like, consider the reader who are, who's, who's this going out to. And so I came up with an idea. I had a conversation with another writer about the point of view and how you write point of views. They insisted that you, that, people write in a first-person point of view only. I disagreed. I enjoyed writing in third person because I like talking about what goes on in different people's minds. But head hopping is not a good thing. You don't want to, you want to still want to focus on one person's point of view. But I still wanted to know what was going on in the others of the characters. So right. it popped into my head a psychic. I could do a first-person story about a psychic and that psychic can then read what's in other people's minds. And I thought, okay, well, what can I do with a psychic? Well, what's the most extreme thing that I could do with a psychic reading people's minds? A poker game. That is the ultimate bluffing game. I thought, oh, that's kind of boring. But, well, what if everybody at the table is a, a psychic? Well, that's going to get really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then the story came from there. I submitted it, and my one of my beta readers really liked it. And I thought, okay. It's a good story. This is a story that's going to get me the next level up. It's not going to be an honorable mention. I might get a silver, 
Um, that would be nice. And then I started working on an another story and my beta readers loved that other story. And I'm sitting on this and I'm ready to submit it. I'm all crafting like, this is the story. This is the one that I'm going to get a finalist with at least. This is the one. And then Joni calls me and said, guess what, Laz? <laughs> that one you wrote last corner. <laughs> That's the one that like, oh. That was good. And not only were you winner, your first place winner. Yep. So the story that uh, I loved and was thought was going to be the winner, that one I put into my own anthology of short stories, which I'm also selling on my website, Lazarus.Black. <laughs> good. So now, again, for the aspiring writer, you're going to have the subject of self-doubt. You're going to have the, the self-doubt and uh, other people reminding you that you needn't give up your day job, you know, um, how do you deal with that? Both of those concepts. Well, this advice applies to both artists and writers. Uh, I went to art school to become a professional artist. So I've already gone through and pushed through and I had a decent career blowing by all of the naysayers, including my own family. So, Putting that into practice as a writer was easy. So, but I, I can combine, because I've already done it. So Good. I'll combine those advice for both artists and writers. That creating any content, music, writing, art, it's a passion. It's not something you can really control, you do it. Even if you're not doing it professionally, you're doing it. Like I right. said, I, I, I wasn't writing until a few years ago, but I was storytelling my entire life. Heck, I went to advertising so I could tell stories. And so that type of influence is always helpful. There's always something you can learn from that. My father did not want me to go into art. Right. And his... His concern, like a lot of people, is, is that, you know, they don't know what it means as far as a career. They don't know anyone who does it. They've, and the people that they do know, they may not get along with. And so they, make, they have a negative association with it. Uh, there's also um, people in the outside of the industries have no idea how many artists and writers there actually are professionally in the world. I mean, an ad agency hires hundreds of artists and writers, right? But people, how many people outside of specific cities know anyone in the advertising world? How many people know a graphic designer? Not many. And they don't think of it as being a, a, a valid career, right? And some of, the, some of the naysaying comes from a place of love where they're just afraid. You know, they want you to have a good life, but they think that's too challenging. And that's one of the things that your passion has to lead the way. It can't uh, do anything else. Right. Some people that, and passion is, has, has scales to it. Um, some people, they don't question it. They just do it. They cannot stop themselves. That doesn't mean that they're better than someone else. It just means that's the, the, their nature. 
and their passion just leads them to create nonstop. Mm -hmm. And then there are people that can only do it part-time. But again, there's no time limit on when you can flip that switch and say, okay, I'm now going to do it. Right. I know two people growing up that were both incredible musicians, incredible musicians, as in one was like giving concerts, okay? Solo concerts, and I don't mean like in a field somewhere, I mean like actually in concert halls. Right. And the other one was, you know, going into jazz, that was incredible. And in both cases, when they graduated high school, their parents said, okay, now it's time to put aside your childish things and I'm not gonna pay for you to go to music school. Well, luckily my mother prevented my father from doing something similar. You know, you're, there are gonna be people that interrupt you, that are trying to, to stop you. It's, it's, you just have to put your own faith in yourself. And that's where the challenge is between doubt and faith. There's a concept going on lately uh, that's become popular and that's uh, imposter syndrome. Right. Imposter syndrome means different things to different industries. For people in the con in in acting, performing, in music, whose jobs are dependent upon selling tickets and co people constantly approaching them, their performance, each and individual performance, is their art form. And if suddenly something happens and people turn around and say you, they refuse to come to your show, well, then your career can be over. Right. People with that have an imposter syndrome in which they have a doubt in what they're doing. They doubt their connection to their audience and they doubt that they're going to have a career tomorrow because that can actually happen. Um, in other fields, that's not as... This doesn't work the same way because if you create a work of art, a, a single work of art and put it up there, people can't return it. <laughs> right. <laughs> they bought it. They've hung it there. They, for something happened, they can't return it. There hasn't really been an instance that outside of criminal forgery where people have gotten up in mass and say, oh, on second thought, I've realized that this art isn't any good. I'm now going to contact that artist and get my money back on mass. Right. Like millions of people. It just doesn't happen. Correct. Same thing with authors. That just doesn't happen. But, you know, people feel that way. My wife feels that way, oddly enough. Which is insane. She is it, so amazingly talented. It is. And then... You have, so setting aside performers, just artists and, and writers specifically, because they have a concrete product that they produce. They have a little bit of a different issue. That they want to be humble because they don't want to be criticized. But then you have some people that are not humble. I've done the market research. This is my career, market research. I've done the market research. There are just as many people crippled with self-doubt in the art world as there are egomaniacs. The percentages are just equal. Okay. <laughs> so if you hear anybody say, you know, all artists have imposter syndrome. No, that's not true. 
Because I guarantee you, I can start walking through DragonCon and start pointing out the people that are the exact opposite. You know, I'm a little closer to the egomaniac side, but I'm not that, that way. I mean, I just have a decent level of confidence. Right. For me, I don't have doubt in what I create because I'm focused entirely on the craft and learning what is good and what is not, and I can put it out there. And I can disassociate myself between whether someone likes it or not. Right. So I can say I've produced something that's going to connect to people, but I go, this, this novel is not going to connect to every single person who's going to read it. That's not a reflection on me. So, sure. Uh, but the people who are going to read this book and love it, they're going to love this book and they're going to tell other people about it. And when I look back at some of the most famous authors in the world in history, many of them started off that way. They created something that people said, why would you write this? You know, not comparing myself to Tolkien or Herbert, but to point out both Tolkien and Herbert put out books that people didn't think anyone would read. Well, as I don't know that I've heard that, you know, Dune was rejected by everything and eventually had to be published by a, a telephone book company or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's various very famous books now, you know, like the whole, I mean, Harry Potter's also gets used quite a bit. She was rejected over and over and over and then finally yeah. was bought by Scholastic, but yeah. But Harry Potter was specifically written to be fiction for children and for mass market, you but know. Multiple rejects. Yeah. It just happened to have a beautiful crossover to it. You yeah. know, Dune was written for a very core audience of people who are really hardcore sci-fi fans. Uh, you know, Tolkien, there wasn't a, really that much of a market when he wrote it at the time. It definitely wasn't a children's novel, but people thought it was. Right. You know, and it was, but he believed in it. Yeah, he did his whole, the whole it allegory just needed there. To hit, yeah. just needed to meet the right people. Right. And it's easy to look back and say 70 years later, it's a success, but, you know... And I'm looking at the future of that. I'm looking at maybe I'm not going to live to see the success of my work. Well, let's hope so. Hopefully this podcast is also good to help Hopefully. take it to like a, I said, the I next mean, level up. I have enough readers telling me that this is their favorite novel in the world, that they cherish this, that I feel confident that there are people, that more of them out there. Yeah. Right. So um, I, there definitely will be. So now, again, now taking it back to the aspiring writer. So how'd you publish this book? So after writing it, I looked into traditional publishing. Right. And I sent out letters to agents. I talked, I learned, I talked to other writers. I talked to people behind the scenes. And eventually I got some very kind and legitimate advice from agents and publishers that told me that explained to me in a way that I appreciated that the book was too complicated to be produced nowadays. That, and the reasons I'll share because I think it's interesting for everybody to know. The major publishers have certain genres that they don't touch for various reasons. I won't share the reasons that were explained to me because that's their opinion, but they don't publish for the most part, for the most part, urban fantasy. They don't publish for the most part, like vampires, there's no vampires in there. Um, and they let the indie small press deal with all of those. 
that's also a bit of a challenge nowadays in 2023 that I, as a... You know, that I'm writing novels or uh, writing characters that are less like me. And the movement right now is to try and give a voice to marginalized authors and let them tell those stories. And I completely support that. I really, really want to do it. My story could not be told with store with characters that are more like me. It just right. couldn't be done. Um, so, and then when I talked to the small publishers, it was just too large. They loved it, but they couldn't afford to publish a book that was 550, 600 pages long. Just the economics of putting a book out there on the show. As a first book out. As a first book. You know, maybe if it was my 10th and I was already... And you have, if you bring an audience with you, and they, okay, good. They know they're going to... Make back their advance and exactly. It was just too complicated for them. uh, Thanks, and I, you know, there's, those are all legitimate reasons. Mm -hmm. So it was time for me to self-publish. Fortunately, I know how to do all of that. I know how to. This cool publisher called Echo X LLC. That's my company, (laughs) (laughs) named after my wife because she's the boss. Uh, yeah, it's, it's self, but it's self-published through my company. Uh, but I know how to lay out books. I know how to do all the art. I know how to do illustration. I know how to manage the covers. And of course, it. what also made it a big uh, easier was the awards. The first place award from Writers of the Future, I get to plaster everywhere because people go, oh, so... This is actually going to be written well. <laughs> yeah. That makes a big difference when someone can say, I won Writers of the Future. It's just, editors, because it's now 40 years old, mm-hmm. it's got a reputation that when a person can carry that around and you even got more bling to add to that. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to yeah, carry this- around a 25-pound Lucite statue, but now to also have the Independent Publisher Book Award, the Ben uh, Franklin Ben Franklin Award, and then also the um, um, Ippy, because that was also a finalist. So you've got one finalist and two gold awards for the book that your your short stories published in. Yeah, the the anthology thirty eight has just keeps racking up more awards. You yeah. know, and I, and I as a part of that, I am incredibly proud. Sure. Uh, but I also it makes a difference being able to say, hey, this, take a chance on this. Yeah. Take a chance on this young author that somebody says is okay. And that the judges are not just judges for the contest. You know, every, every single publication out there has the people that they curate to manage you know, and, and vet the stories that they publish. So really, all of them are kind of contests. Right. But all of them are curating for something specific something that they know that their readers want or something that they have set themselves up as a business model to want to promote, you know, um, every single one. Writers of the Future is all the judges are primarily novelists, even though they've, read, they've written short stories. Right. But they, you have sci-fi novelists and fantasy novelists and urban fantasy novelists and you have children's novelists, young adult novelists, YA, yeah. middle grade. I mean, all these different people, and they just love good stories. They love writing, and so 
they're not curating for anything but quality. And one thing too that this contest is about was originally it was set up, you know, again by Elrond uh, Hubbard, was to provide that for the future of speculative fiction, future science fiction and fantasy, because the whole the whole idea of paying forward is something that, you know, the judges all along, going all the way back to the original judges, you know, like Frank Herbert, the creator of Dune. His son's a judge now, but Frank mm -hmm. Herbert was one of the yep. first judges. And then Todd McCaffrey. With Anne McCaffrey's mom was one of the judges. So it's got a, an amazing history of, of talented authors who wanted to see to the next generation. They themselves were helped by yep. Anne McCaffrey. Um, C.L. Moore was one of the first judges. She had an amazing letter she wrote to Elwin Hubbard, who helped her way back when she was starting her career. So it's the whole thing is to, is to help the aspiring writer and, and provide for the future of science fiction and fantasy, which it, it's a special genre, I think, because it's also a genre of, of hope for the future. It's, it's one thing to be able to write a good story that people get sucked into, but it's also like, and your story does this. You know, which is what I liked about it is that it takes something like you can see around and see how really bad and wrong the world can be, and then something can happen, and it can it can go right at least a piece of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's hope. You know, and that's one thing that hope I think is a big. I think that's a huge factor. And that's something your story definitely to me. So okay, so where's this going? That's not hope. You know, there, there's hope because some of the characters are just like, they're just the, what might ref, be referred to as, as just the gutter trash, the, the, the refuse of society, but there's still goodness in everybody. And you put attention on that, even though there's some really, the bad guys are really bad and I'm glad they got what came to them. But, you know, the other guys that was like, they were considered the refuse of society there still was good in them, and that came out in the way that you, your story unfolded, which I really, really appreciated. Thank it, to me, that's the power of genre fiction, uh -huh. because if you were to write a story without any genre elements whatsoever, and you wrote a story about people who were struggling that then overcame, a lot of people would just say it was unrealistic. Yeah. And they'd be right <laughs> because it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. But once you add genre fiction elements to it, it allows you to imagine that things could be better. Could be. At and least conceive the idea. Yeah. My real intention uh, uh, with this story is besides entertainment is that I wanted people to feel the way you felt about, hey, this, this, this character actually has some value yeah. to them. Yeah, but hopefully it might also ring true with some of the readers and say, you know, maybe I didn't feel myself, or this reflects my own personal struggle. Sure. In some way. Sure. And the plot device of the novel is that there's this gigantic 75-ton magical bell from Asia, from ancient China, that if it were to ever ring, that it will strip away all of the pretense from whoever who hears it and reveals who they are deep inside. And that's a terrifying thought for most people. Yeah. And so in order for 
that dichotomy and that to actually have power in the story, the reader has to understand who these people are and who they think they are and their own personal motivations. And so I have to jump into their heads so you to see and follow them and how they feel about themselves in order for that to make sense. Absolutely. So I just noticed here we've come to the end of our hour here. So please give me how people can find you and where they can find this book. So, uh, so first of all, I am at DragonCon. I am in booth 2200 at uh, the uh, Echo Chernick booth, Echo-X. Uh, Echo is my wife. Uh, she, mostly her art, but I do have a section for my novels and some signs and selling prints of the covers. Online, I have uh, the novel and my anthology available on http colon slash slash lazarus.black l-a-z-a-r-u-s dot b-l-a-c-k there is no dot com or dot org or dot net dot black is a legitimate extension and that's my website where i have everything it also it links to my store that you know to buy the books my anthology is available as an ebook on both for both kindle uh and uh so it's available on amazon and on Barn barnes and noble but I also sell ebooks uh, through my personal store. The ebook for the novel is pending. It's coming out. Good. I really, really, really want to have uh, more uh, reviews of the novel, of the paperback, so that I can promote with it. Good. I don't want to just put, throw the ebook up there blind and nobody knows who I am. So I'm gonna, it's going to take a couple more weeks, a couple more months before that's finally up there. So Good. I encourage people to uh, uh, invest in the paperback or find some, you know, encourage other people to invest in the paperback and uh, leave reviews on Goodreads and other places like that. Great. Well, thank you very much, Lazarus. And I really enjoyed the book and I think other people enjoy it too. And I'm glad also that uh, I can claim you as one of the contest success stories as well, having uh, gone up the ranks there as uh, an entrant, an honorable mention, and a first place winner and published, and now you're a, a novelist as well. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, John, for everything. Thank you, Galaxy Press, Writers of the Future, Joni, everybody, everywhere. And of course, all the judges who actually thought this was, you know, my short story was worthwhile. Absolutely, um, and everyone Hubbard who believed in the future of science fiction writers like yourself. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy.